Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? There's a new menace stalking the northern parts of Canada, one that appears in winter and takes lives. It's been unleashed by climate change. Unfortunately, there's, there's been loss of life, at least two in, in recent memory that lost their lives when uh, their heavy equipment uh, fell through the ice uh, while building these winter roads. The threat comes from once reliable winter roads, ribbons of them built and rebuilt every year. They're essential arteries across Canada's north, but they're freezing later and melting earlier making travel and shipping essential goods ever more difficult and dangerous. Imagine hopping in a truck as icy winds roar, trying to maintain these roads that traverse land and water, trying to ensure they're safe. Then imagine living in a village or a town cut off from the world if the route is suddenly impassable. Today on What on Earth, we hit the road, the ice road. We'll hear from an Indigenous chief, a researcher studying the effects of climate change on winter roads, and an Inuit man who lives off the grid. We'll also speak with a government minister who's caught between a rock and thin ice. We begin with the communities of the Nishnabe Aski Nation in northern Ontario. More than two-thirds of the people who live there use winter roads. Alvin Fiddler is the Grand Chief for the nation, and we've reached him in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Hello. Hello. You know these winter roads well. Tell me what they're like to drive on. It's an adventure for sure. Uh, when you're traveling up to one of the communities that utilize the winter road, some of them are quite long in terms of distance from community to community. And you just have to be well prepared uh, when you go up there to make sure that you have emergency supplies, uh, enough fuel to get to where you're going, and uh, food and water and matches and uh, axe if you need to make a fire. Okay, that's a bit different than driving on <laughs> on the kinds of roads I drive on. You need an axe for a fire. It's that is it that risky? Yeah, I mean, there's no Tim Hortons along the way. You won't see too many Tim Hortons or coffee shops or gas stations. So you have to make sure that you have emergency supplies, uh, a shovel if you get stuck in the snow, to be able to dig out rope if you need to pull somebody out, and just being sure that you have supplies to make a fire if you get stuck, um, just to make sure that you're warm and that you're safe. And have you had the, something like that happen to you? Yeah, a, a few years ago, my wife and I had a little uh, incident on the road there. What happened? Did you get stuck? No, it's, uh, you know, these winter roads are not built to standard, so they don't, you know, the, the width of the road or in terms of how they're graded, how, how windy they, they can be. It gets really icy, and uh, we were just coming around this corner, and I could see the semi coming on the other side, coming towards us, and there was just no room. So we just kind of try to hug the snowbank on our side, and then we just gradually slid in and hit the back end of the semi-truck. Luckily, we were okay, but our truck wasn't. That is scary. It can be. 
You were talking about the grading being different. I wonder if you can tell me how you actually build one of these roads. Well, actually, communities uh, start if they can. Uh, you know, if it's a cold November, they start uh, packing it uh, using snow machines and then starting uh, in December to using lighter groomers and then uh, late December, early January, that's when they start using the more heavier equipment to build and grade and plow the road. And usually, uh, you know, winter roads are ready by middle of middle of January. Sounds like a lot of work. It is. And uh, it's even more challenging now with the uh, sort of the change in climate and the environment that we've seen over the last you know 10, 15, even 20 years with uh, more warmer fall season. Like even the month of January, it was really warm. Uh, so that was uh, challenging for communities to try to get a head start on, on building these winter roads because of how warm it was. Let, let's talk about why these roads are so important. What are they used for? Well, I mean, there is essentially the lifelines for communities uh, in the territory. In the Nation, uh, we have uh, 49 communities, but 32, 31, 32 communities are considered uh, remote flying communities, and they need to uh, build these winter roads uh, to be able to haul their fuel and supplies and equipment uh for the upcoming year so that they have enough supplies. So if they have to build a new school, for example, or build a, a, an arena that they have this window, usually from January to middle March to haul whatever they need. Uh, a lot of our communities still rely on uh, diesel generators, so they need to make sure that they have enough fuel uh, to last them for the upcoming year. Because you're saying when, when you can't build these roads, there is no other way to get there but to come in on a plane. Yeah, and that's really expensive. I mean, that can easily double or even triple your cost of hauling fuel or hauling materials and supplies to the community. So it's really expensive. You you talked a little bit earlier about the changes that, that people have seen in the roads in recent years. Um, you mentioned that maybe the shorter window for being able to build them. What other changes are you seeing? Um, even the uh, the ice, it's not solid blue ice that, that I saw when I was growing up. It's more like slushy, chippy ice, and it's not as safe as it used to be. And this presents uh, a lot of challenges and even danger to our communities. And uh, unfortunately, there's there's been loss of life, at least two in, in recent memory that lost their lives when uh, their heavy equipment uh, fell through the ice uh, while building these winter roads. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Are, are these people that you knew? Yeah, they're from our communities. It's becoming more and more uh, concerning with the uh, the constructs of these roads, with the, the change in climate that we've we've seen and are seeing uh, over the last few years. Safety is obviously a concern, even in the construction of the roads. What are you doing now? What are the communities doing now to make this as safe as it can possibly be? Many of our communities, including my own community of Muskrat Dam, they've uh, now rerouting some of the winter roads so that they avoid uh, big lakes if possible and to uh, stay on, on high ground uh, with the hope that uh, these winter roads will eventually become all season roads. Are people happy about that? I can imagine it would be great. Yeah, I mean, like with anything, with any major development, uh, mixed feelings, obviously, with uh, you know those that want to sort of preserve the land and, and those that feel that uh, all-season roads would help improve quality of life and, and lessen some of the costs of food and supplies, essential goods for the community. So uh, that's why studies are so important to make sure that uh, communities are properly consulted. What about you? You grew up with these winter roads. Where does your heart lie in this debate? Uh, I would say uh, mixed. You know, many of us are still connected to the land. We we love being out there and uh, just the the pristine 
nature of, of our rivers and our water and, and our trees. But then you got to sort of weigh that with the high cost of living in many in many of our communities. So it's definitely a debate that we're having even amongst ourselves to see if this is uh, the way to go. Hard choices. For sure. But it, it's already happening. In fact, uh, one of the communities that, uh, that we go through, a community called North Caribou Lake, uh, they became... Um, connected to the road just recently you know they can drive out anytime they want even in the summertime it's, uh, you know it also means encroachment of say in the fall time with moose hunters coming from the south closer and closer to our territories it's a bit of a balancing act and those are some of the issues that we're trying to address through the work that we're doing now gee fiddler i really appreciate you telling me about this thank you thank you so much The communities that Alvin Fiddler oversees aren't alone in noticing big changes to their winter roads. Paul Barrett is watching these changes closely from far away. He's a research scientist with the National Research Council of Canada, and he's studying the safety of winter roads, especially as the climate changes. We've reached him in Ottawa. Hello. Hello, Laura. Let's start out by clarifying some terms here. Tell me what the difference is between a winter road and an ice road. A winter road is a road used only in the winter. It has components that goes over land and over frozen lakes, and it also crosses rivers. The components that go over frozen lakes and frozen rivers are ice roads or ice bridges or ice crossings. Okay, I had never heard that distinction before. So that that is new to me, and I suspect some of our listeners who haven't driven over these kinds of roads before. So let's use the word winter roads when we're talking about the whole stretch of these things. How many winter roads are there in Canada? We usually think in terms of length. So we're talking about 8,000 kilometers. You figure driving from Vancouver to Halifax and back. That's about the extent of the known or recurring winter roads that we have in Canada. Those roads are built every year. Unlike other roads that also do exist, they're built by the private sector, perhaps another several thousand kilometers as well. Wow, that is remarkable that the, to go all that stretch from, as I imagine, Vancouver to Halifax and back again, and they are built every year, and you say there may be as many as several thousand kilometers beyond that are, that are built by what? Logging companies and that sort of thing? That is correct, because they may like to have a, maybe a one-time access, and they rely on those uh, roads to get to these areas. I've seen highway crews out on roads before, and I know there's a lot of work and heavy machinery that goes into building them. Is it something similar with building winter roads? Now, winter roads, we're talking about the recurring type. So initially, removing trees and roots and leveling the ground from a year-to-year basis, it's a matter of waiting for the ground and the water to freeze to a safe depth. And when we feel comfortable that the ice cover is thick enough, what we would do is send vehicles to clear off the snow, then wait further until the ice achieves a sufficient thickness for the light loads and then for the medium loads and then for the higher loads. So once that is established then, um, both the the ones that cross over water and the ones that the parts of the road that don't, how are they maintained through the season? Is it just like any other highway we see in the south? In overland portion, snow is used as a construction material. So it's is used to spread and leveling the surface 
because we have to keep in mind that the traffic that uses those roads are just like traffic that we have down south. The road has to be able to accommodate the same types of vehicles. Including trucks. Including trucks and sometimes very heavy trucks like we have in the south. Oh, wow. It must be very significantly frozen all across it to hold that load. So let's throw in climate change. How is climate change affecting these roads? Overall, the uh, higher average air temperature, the amount of precipitation in the form of snow and even sometimes in the form of rain, changing patterns in those, that can affect the operations. Tell me how. They will progressively become less reliable in the sense that it doesn't allow the ice to grow to sufficient depth. So the road opens later. And then you have the mid-season warm spells. And that causes the road to stop working as it should, so the road closes. And finally, it brings the closure earlier than expected. So overall, what you're having is an operational time span that is shorter as the years go by. But I guess that there are times within the season when it's open, when, when the conditions on the road are just not good for driving, whether there's too much rain, and um, I imagine that becomes really unsafe. What becomes unsafe is really at the uh, level of the uh, over-ice segments. And this is typically what causes problems in terms of breakthroughs and loss of life. So what do you do right now in terms of uh, measuring the safety of a road? Keeping track of the ice thickness on the over-ice segments is certainly an important element which impedes the successful usage of that road is often the warm spell that causes the surface not to be trafficable. But what happens when a part of the road is deemed unsafe? Part of the road may become unsafe when cracking occurs on the over-ice segments and water makes its way on the surface. The traffic is asked to go around these zones while that particular damaged surface is being repaired. It is being repaired by flooding using pumps, covering the ice that has partly broken. This freezes and that surface of the ice becomes usable again. Is it sort of like flooding the ice rink? Is it the same idea? That is the same idea, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, Paul, I'm wondering if we, if we can look a little more longer term. What are some of the options these communities are facing as these roads become less reliable? Typically, what we think of solutions for those roads and the issues they're developing over the years is replacement in an all-season road. Then we have uh, the option of deploying culverts and, uh, say, small structural bridges at problematic locations. That is something that is being considered, for instance, in northern Ontario. Moving the road away from lakes, because lakes are often weak links. Now, we know the, the north is warming at a faster rate than, than southern Canada. What does that mean for the future of winter roads? Are, are they going to disappear at some point? It's likely that they're going to become less reliable with time. From what the trends show is that they may not be sustainable uh, in the longer term, though. And that would be a sad thing too, wouldn't it? It's hard to say how the north is going to evolve. Paul Barrett, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me over, Laura. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. As we've been hearing, these seasonal roads are under threat, and the people in the communities that rely on them are facing some scary realities. Diane Archie is the Infrastructure Minister for the Northwest Territories. She grew up near the Mackenzie River Delta. I've seen pictures of even vehicles that are going through the ice because people are used to traveling in a time when it was safe and now it's no longer safe because of weather conditions. I mean, years ago growing up, it would be minus 40. And now we don't see a lot of that. But even in minus 20, everyone's thinking it's cold and it's not. Then there are the practicalities. Archie knows how hard it is to get groceries and fuel in and how hard it is to keep the water from rising. We are seeing ice thinning. On our winter roads, we are seeing shorter window for people to be able to resupply um, supplies in the communities. We are looking at um, the high water levels that are coming up the um, Mackenzie River. One possible alternative to melting ice roads is building more all-season roads, like the highway from Inuvik to Tuktoyaktuk. The all-season road lifted people's expectations and optimism when it opened in 2017. But climate change is already taking a toll. It was very harsh on the Nuvik Tuck Highway Road. We're having to continuously do work, even though it's fairly new highway. We still continue to see slumping. We're having to have a look at some of our bridge work, our culverts. So there is a lot of damage, perhaps, to the road that, as Department of Infrastructure, we need to have a look at. That highway cost hundreds of millions of dollars to put in place, and the special construction methods meant to protect it against the challenges of the climate are failing. For Archie, though, building more new all-season roads is worth it, even if some people don't want them. Yeah, I I think so. You know, one of the things that um, I'm mandated to do is to look at um, the Mackenzie Valley Highway, right from Yellowknife up to uh, Inuvik. Every year we apply for federal funding to be able to help build some of the infrastructure. And I think the Mackenzie Valley Highway will keep a lot of, you know, people in the Northwest Territories in the Northwest Territories. We have 33 communities. Every community is different. You know, I'm hearing that some communities just don't want anybody in. Um, Some communities want, you know, to ensure that there are not drugs or perhaps alcohol coming in the communities when we have dry communities. There are a number of factors, and I I don't want to speak for all. I think it's important. Like, I mean, I live in Nunavik. Throughout the year, we are basically secluded to our community until we have ice crossing or until we have the ferries come in. And during that time, we see a lot of high prices in our food. We're having to fly a lot of goods into our communities. And that, that gets expensive. The all-season roads in the, in the um, Northwest Territories are essential. 
That's Diane Archie, the Infrastructure Minister for the Northwest Territories. Now, as government considers long-term permanent solutions, the immediate safety of these roads is top of mind for those who travel on them in the wintertime. Homa Kerolapur is creating a new system that will warn travelers about the changing conditions of these roads. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. Hello. Hi, Lara. These roads are in places that, that are actually constructed across frozen lakes, frozen bodies of water. You have been studying two lakes in particular. What are you trying to find out? We are trying to find out how safe the ice are for the community, for using the ice road, uh, for commuting and bringing the goods, or even um, traveling from their home to their cottages using skidoos. We are studying large lakes like Great Slave Lake and Great Bear Lake in Northwest Territories, and also small lakes in uh, North Slave Area. There are tons of small lakes there that are very connected to the community as well. And and what trends are you seeing in, in these lakes in terms of their safety? Our study shown that ice duration in lakes um, over mostly nor- north hemispheric lakes are decreasing and they are because they're responding to global warming. So we are seeing earlier breakup time and later freeze up time. So we are seeing that the ice duration is getting shorter. Then how risky is it to drive on these roads? It could be risky. I mean, there are two different ways to see it. One is the variability over time, uh, over years, year by years, like we are seeing that we are having a shorter ice cover duration. So when the ice duration is shorter, it means that we don't have enough time for a lake to freeze and get thick enough and safe. And uh, the second thing is winter temperature is changing. So we have lots of fluctuation in temperature in winter. So one day can be minus 40, 30, and one day could be minus 5. And it will actually create a lot of pressure ridges and uh, cracks over the lakes that can be very risky for the community to uh, drive over it. So your team has created a monitoring system. Tell me how it works. We are trying to model ice thickness. Basically, we are trying to uh, create a map of ice thickness over lakes and provide this to the community kind of near real time in operational way. We are not there yet, but we are um, putting the model together. We actually run the model for this Great Bear and Great Slave Lake that uh, right now we can create everyday ice thickness. You're not there, so how do you do that? The physics of the model has been created before. Like This is not a new thing that we did. So we are measuring uh, different parameters as an input for our model, which is temperature, humidity, cloud cover, precipitation, snowfall. So we can get this information from weather station, for example. And that is why you don't need to be there because you're getting it remotely. Is that right? Yes, but if you imagine a lake, which is huge, like Great Bear Lake, one station on one point of the lake is not really a good representation of the whole lake, right? So that the temperature is around that area, like cloud cover is over the weather station. So we found that is not good enough to produce the map for ice thickness. What we do, we actually use satellite observations, satellite images, and we use this data as an input. So we don't use really weather station anymore. Rather, we just use the satellite observations. 
Oh, that's so interesting. All right. So so then that, that gives you what you need to sort of design the model. You have been now um, testing the model, as you said, on these two lakes. How close is it to being ready? It is ready for science, but it's not ready for operational. We actually we have a website and uh, just initial map of ice thickness is already there on our, our website. Running it op- operationally means that we have to get satellite observations every day. Right. So you've been using it modeling past data and it gives you the yes. thickness. But as, as soon as we have satellite observations of temperature, we can create the map of ice thickness. But you're not ready to do it in real time. We are not ready to do it uh, real time because it actually needs a very big and powerful computer power to run it right away. And do you have any idea when that might be coming? Um, hopefully soon. We are, we are hoping to work with Environment and Climate Change Canada because they have the capacity of running the models in um, real time and operational mode, like weather uh, forecasting models, right? That they can get the data every single day. Yeah, it makes sense. It's it's almost like something like you pull up on your your weather station app. You'd get the report on the on the road for the day. Is that how you you sort of hope people in those communities and provinces and territories will be able to use it? Exactly. Okay, so we have to wait a little while yet before it comes. And but there's some other things that have been um, uh, wrinkles in the way of your work here. And there's mm-hmm. co- there's COVID, for example. How did that affect your work? Um, In the beginning, we were very upset because we thought, okay, we cannot go up north um, this year and then we cannot collect our data to improve our model. Um, But we came with a solution to help with the community to collect the data because um, we're really believing that we have to build the capacity of community-led monitoring. We sent our instrument there and we have a Zoom call and workshop online now they are able to run our instrument, which is a grand penetrating radar. It's like a machine that you can drag it over the ice and you can calculate the ice thickness in real time. Well, that's great. Um, and they probably are enthusiastic about doing it. Can you see them having a role in this work going forward? For them to be able to do it, they can do it and they can actually monitor the ice that they are living on it every single day. And they'll, they would share this information with each other, what, via social media? Or what would, do you know how they're doing it's that? It's very interesting because I was in contact with um, people there that, um, some of them that create the ice roads. And uh, they communicate each other through uh, Facebook, for example. They have a page. And if there is any cracks and any pressure ridges that it's looks actually danger. I see that they post on the Facebook and uh, just warn each other that, hey, be careful when you're driving <laughs> over the ice. And uh, we are actually hoping to use this kind of communication with them. Like anyhow that works with them, that should be fine. Uh, that is a great idea. I mean, and, and the quality of the information would be very good. I have seen um, in other locations, um, Facebook groups that I've used when I've been traveling that warn each other about the condition of certain mountain passes, too. So it is a great idea. But I have to ask you, what do you think the long-term picture is for for these kinds of roads? It doesn't look really promising, to be honest. I mean, we will have ice for still coming years, for sure. But I'm more 
worry about the years that we have ice, but the ice is not safe. That's very dangerous and it's not good for the community. I'm really worried about this pressure ridges and cracks that happens and created overnight. So they are, they are driving with the skidoos to the cabins and everything was fine. And then next evening they come back and it's dark and there is cracks and they don't know about it. And this will be very, very dangerous. It's why I'm really trying to promote this community-led monitoring. What, what got you interested in doing this kind of work? I was doing my master at University of Waterloo and I was using uh, modeling and remote sensing of ice. And the first lake I started to study was Great Bear Lake. And um, I look at the satellite observations and temperature of land and lake and so, like you, can, you could actually see the heat coming from water through the ice of the atmosphere. You can, you can definitely read this heat. And I was so amazed with it. And um, in 2019, I traveled to Great Bear Lake for a totally different project. And I get to know people there and I talk to them and I drive with them over ice and talk to the fishermen that they do ice fishing. And I really got stuck to it <laughs> because <laughs> I found that this is something that is very, very important. And there are the community that they have lots of knowledge and they are amazing and they are really keen to learn new stuff and talking about satellite observations. And I, I really decided to work on this area. So first it was about the science and then it became about the people. Exactly. Professor, that, that's a wonderful story and I wish you good luck with the rest of your project. Thank you. Thank you, Lara. Thank you for having me on. Homa Kerolakpur is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. Now, satellites and radar are high-tech ways to measure safety, but what about getting out on the ice with a chainsaw and a drill? Kailik Kasun taylor lives off the grid and drives into Inuvik a lot. He's used to testing the ice as he goes. Nobody's really taking chances when they're building roads, you know? Like, you got a $100,000 truck with a plow on it. You're not just going to go willy-nilly. You're, you know, you're going to check the ice with a, an auger and a chainsaw and make sure it's thick enough. And I mean, it's mostly people going through the ice around here are people that are just bombing around in their trucks where they're not supposed to, you know? <laughs> like I'm one of the first people to be driving on the ice every year because I live in the bush. So to get to town, I need to either take a snowmobile or a van. So as soon as the ice freezes, I have a little drill. I can drill a two-foot hole, like a really small hole, really quick with my power drill. And so as soon as I feel like it's been frozen long enough, I go along the whole trail to Inuvik. And I, you know, every 500 feet, I drill this little hole. And as long as there's over a foot of ice, I start driving. And I've never had issues. But I take the time and I map it out and I drill the holes and I'm driving right over top of those holes. I'm not bombing around like all over the place. Like I have friends of mine, as soon as there's ice, they have nice four by four trucks and they're like going to a Clavic because this place is like a big highway, right? It's a river system. So it's really fun and you can go pretty much anywhere. You know, you're putting yourself at a pretty good risk. That was Kailik Kasun-Taylor based near Inuvik. That does it for us this week. And if you haven't given us a review yet, please do tell a friend because it helps move the climate conversation forward. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, our intern Serena Renner, associate producers Jennifer Van Evra and Rachel Sanders, producer Lisa Johnson. 
Sound engineer Matthias Wolfson, and this week Molly Siegel is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.